In Scotland, when friends get together, they blether. When these three friends happen to be Scottish Blue Badge tourist guides, you can be sure that the country that they're so passionate about will be right at the heart of their discussions, be it contemporary or historical, culinary or cultural, reminiscence or anecdote. From accommodation to zoos, the chat will range right across the entire alphabet of topics and issues that are live and happening in Scotland right now. We hope that you'll join us. There's nothing to beat a recht git blether. And you could also join in our blethers on social media. You can find us as at Scottish Blethers on both Facebook and Instagram. We post additional content during the week that supports the podcast episode. We love making the podcasts and would love it if you could share them with your friends and leave a review on the platform of your choice. Hello and welcome to episode 30 of Scottish Blethers, another milestone in the Scottish Blethers journey. I'm Liz Lister. And I'm Helen Houston. And we're recording this episode in a sad atmosphere, because yesterday we heard the sad news that His Royal Highness, the Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, sadly passed away. And he was held in great affection by the people of Scotland. Many strong links. Yes, it was a sad day and the television last night was wonderful. Telling about his contribution was great. And much of that contribution to Scotland. So as our own little tribute to a great man, the next episode of Scottish Blethers, episode 31, will focus on Prince Philip's links with Scotland as the Duke of Edinburgh. Yeah, that sounds really good plan, Liz, yes. Okay, now we're always urging our listeners to come up with ideas of any topic that they would like us to cover. And this week it's by special request because Greer Whitney has asked us to explain the origins of Tartan Day. Tell us all about it, Helen. Well, on the 6th of April this week, it was Tartan Day. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about Tartan Day and why and when, where it is. So it's a celebration of Scottish heritage and it takes place on the 6th of April, which is the date on which the Declaration of Our Broth was signed in 1320. The idea of a Tartan Day originated in Canada. On the 9th of March 1986, a Tartan Day to promote Scottish heritage in Canada was proposed at a meeting of the Federation of Scottish Clans in Nova Scotia. Jean Watson, who was president of the Clan Lamont at that time, petitioned provisional legislators to recognise the 6th of April as Tartan Day. Nova Scotia was the first to do this, swiftly followed by other provinces. This idea soon spread to other communities in the Scottish diaspora in the 1990s. In 1997, the Scottish Coalition USA looked to have Tartan Day recognised in the United States in a similar way to which it was being observed in Canada. In 1998, the United States Senate agreed to adopt the 6th of April as National Tartan Day. This led in turn to the congressional and the presidential passing of the recognition of Tartan Day observation on the 6th of April each year. In Australia, wearing of tartan on the 1st of July has been encouraged since 1989. 
and has been promoted as International Tartan Day in Australia since 1996. It is formally recognised in many of the states, but is not yet recognised at national level. Angus Council in Scotland, whose region includes Arbroath, established the first Tartan Day Festival in Scotland on the 6th of April 2004 and has joined with other regional councils in Scotland to establish its potential as a global celebration. It is spreading. Argentina has around 100,000 people of Scottish descent, and this is the largest such community outside the English-speaking world. The inaugural Tartan Day Parade took place in Buenos Aires on the 6th of April 2006. It is organised every year by the Scottish Argentine Society, and a symbolic key to the gate of Arbroath Abbey is carried to mark the date of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. In Australia, the date for Tartan Day is the 1st of July, which is the anniversary of the Act of Proscription, 1747. This act made the wearing of tartan a punishable offence with up to seven years' transportation. And it appears that when the Scots first arrived in Australia as part of this transportation, they hid their Scottish roots. And it is quoted, Scots did what they were told to do when they came to Australia, assimilate and integrate, and they almost disappeared. One aim of Tartan Day is to help Australians reconnect with their Scottish ancestry. A Tartan revival started, and now many Australian states, as well as the Commonwealth of Australia, have their own tartans. Tartan Day is celebrated across the world where the Scottish diaspora has settled. In many places, it is a real celebration with pipe bands and highland dancing and many other Scottish-themed events. A butcher in Maclean, New South Wales, Australia, is said to celebrate the day by selling haggis burgers. Not so sure about that. In New York, Tartan Day has grown into Tartan Week and the Tunes of Glory Parade can include up to Eight to 10,000 pipers and drummers marching through the streets of New York. And in 2002, this was led by Sean Connery. This year, they have held a virtual Tartan Week with events celebrating the life of Flora MacDonald, for example, a virtual parade, news from Shetland and Scotland, a virtual visit by Visit Scotland to Alladale Wilderness Reserve, which is north of Inverness, a 250th anniversary celebration of Sir Walter Scott, the author and many other virtual events to keep Scotland in the forefront of minds till travel opens up again. I'm sure that all our American listeners out there and Canadian listeners and listeners all over the world have managed to celebrate Tartan Day or Tartan Week in a very unique way this year by being very creative with technology. Another event or tradition which started up in America is the Kirkin of the Tartan. The Reverend Peter Marshall, originally from Coat Bridge near Glasgow, was minister of the New York Avenue Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C. He did fundraising for the British War Relief in World War II, and at one of these fundraising services, he preached a sermon entitled The Kirkin of the Tartans, and a legend was born. And nowadays, many Scottish, Caledonian and St Andrews societies across the US and Canada hold Kirkano the Tartans. St Andrews Day, 30th of November and Tartan Day, the 6th of April are popular dates for this Kirkin. But the Kirkin can also be held at Highland Games, recalling the conventicles, the outdoor gatherings of the Covenanters in Lowland Scotland. Tartan now encompasses the spectrum of human interests and endeavours and spans the globe. 
Alan Bean, the lunar module pilot of Apollo 12, took half a yard of McBean Tartan to the moon in 1969. And to help with the sale of war bonds in 1942, Walt Disney designed the McDuck Tartan for Mickey's Scottish uncle. Now, military sections, both in the US and Canada and in the UK, have got their own tartans. Companies have their tartans, famous whiskies have their tartan, so do towns, cities and visitors attractions, all with their own individual tartans. No other fabric in the world could encapsulate such a range of images and emotions. Tartan is truly all things to all men. So that's Tartan Week, Liz. And women too, Helen, and women too. One of my favourite tartans is the Princess Diana tartan. So it's all things to all men and women. And it's a very soft tartan, that isn't a very lovely soft colours in that one. It is, it's a lovely one. I think even Shrek has his own tartan. It's just amazing. But of course, if you want a tartan to be registered in the register of tartans, it's got to go through the process and protocols to make sure it, it actually is meaningful. But I think the, the tartan week or the tartan days have had quite a challenge both last year and this year, because the 6th of April, of course, was right in the beginnings of our lockdown last year across the globe. So perhaps you've raised so many topics there that we can blether about, but perhaps before we start the blethers, maybe we should just explain to our listeners what the Declaration of Our Broth actually was and why it's so important. So the Declaration was actually a letter, and today it's widely regarded as Scotland's most iconic document. If you want to see it, you can visit the National Records of Scotland, which are in Edinburgh, where it's kept with our other national treasures. And this one that you see here isn't a letter that was sent, but one of two copies written at the same time in 1320. And this one, I suppose, was the file copy. And now it's the sole survivor of the three. What you'll see is a piece of fine sheepskin measuring 54 centimetres in width by 67 and a half centimetres in length. On it are written 1,000 words written in Latin. Now, documents of this time weren't signed. If you think about it, most people couldn't write, but they were commonly authenticated by the attachment of wax seals. And attached to this document, you'll see 19 seals. But when it was written, there would have been as many as 50 probably gathered and attached over some weeks or months. The majority have broken or fallen off over time, and the fact that it bears the scars of rats nibbling at the document shows that it hasn't always been well cared for. Some of the seals are in red, indicating the more important nobles, while the seals of the less important barons are in green. The seals show a mixture of heraldic and personal motifs. There are three showing knights on horsebacks. Multi-sealed documents like this are rare, demonstrating that this was a document of national significance, drawn up by very important people. It was actually a missive to Pope John in Rome, head of Western Christendom, endorsed by eight earls and 31 of the most powerful Scottish barons of the day, asserting the antiquity of the independence of the Kingdom of Scotland and denouncing English attempts to subjugate it. It was a carefully crafted appeal designed to persuade the Pope to reconsider his approach to the long-running Anglo-Scottish conflict and to recognise Robert I, or as we know him, King Robert the Bruce, as the rightful King of Scotland. It's fair to say that King Robert the Bruce didn't have the best of relationships with the Pope. 
During the Scottish Wars of Independence, the Pope had recognised Edward I's of England's claim to overlordship of Scotland in 1305, and then he excommunicated the Bruce for murdering his competitor John Common in Greyfriars Abbey and in Fries in 1306, before Robert then went on to claim the Crown of Scotland. Although the excommunication was lifted in 1308, it was imposed again in 1320 when Robert and four Scottish bishops ignored a papal summons and warfare continued in the face of demands for peace. In spite of Scotland's success against the English at the Battle of Bannockburn in 1314, they were no closer to achieving their aim of recognition as a free, independent country, with King Robert the Bruce as their king. This declaration was part of a diplomatic counter-offensive to try to get the Pope to assert Scotland's position as an independent kingdom, rather than its being a feudal land controlled by an England-Norman king. The content was probably planned at a meeting of the King and his Council of Advisers at New Battle Abbey, just south of Edinburgh, in March 1320, but it's dated at the Monastery of Arbroath in Angus, the location of the King's Chancery or Writing Office. King Robert's Chancellor was Bernard, Abbot of Arbroath, and it's him that's credited with drafting the document. It's only a thousand words in length, so it's easy to read, and you really have to applaud Bernard's mastery of prose. It throws everything but the kitchen sink at the Pope. It starts with a lot of forelock tugging. Humble and devout sons, earnest prayers, suppliant hearts. Then it goes on to say, This concerns you, Holy Father, since you see the savagery of the heathens raging against the Christians. The frontiers of Christendom are being threatened. It emphasises Scotland's pedigree as an independent Christian kingdom, providing the mythical account of the Scoti, the forebears of the Scots, who are said to have journeyed from Scythia Major, the Greek name for the lands to the northeast of Europe, through Spain to Britain, where they threw out the Britons, the Picts and the Norse, and the English, before 113 kings ruled without interruption from foreigners. It's a case of, here's day as was like us, the Scots <laughs> have a good conceit of themselves. It goes on to explain how they lived in freedom and peace until King Edward I, Hammer of the Scots, invaded Scotland and caused widespread havoc. The declaration asserts that the Scots were saved by their present king, Robert the Bruce, whom they'll defend as their king, unless he seeks to make their kingdom subject to the English king. If he does that, he's out. But then it begins to play hardball with a variety of bribes and threats. The bribes are based on the fact that the Pope was keen to have a crusade to the Holy Land. The bribes rouse the Christian princes who, for false reasons, pretend that they cannot go to the help of the Holy Land because of wars they have on hand with their neighbours. How cheerfully we would go if only they would just leave us in peace. And so the Scots promise that they, if the English would leave them in peace, would be keen to support the Pope in his crusade in the Holy Land. And then they really start the threats. It will tarnish your holiness's memory if the church suffers eclipse and scandal. What they're saying is you'll be answerable to God if you have our blood on your conscience. So whether it was the offer of support from the Scots for the long-desired crusade, if they no longer had to fear the English invasion, or the threat of his memory being defiled. But the Pope took heed of the 
arguments and exhorted Edward II in a letter to make peace with the Scots. But the following year, the English hit back and the Pope was again persuaded to take up their side and he issued six bulls to that effect. And so it wasn't until Edward II was deposed in 1327 and consequent discord in England gave rise to an opportunity to negotiate a settlement. And in 1328, the Treaty of Edinburgh at Northampton was supposed to effect a final and perpetual peace. And it included the recognition of Robert I as king and of Scottish independence. And in 1329, the Pope issued another papal bull, this time permitting the anointing and crowning of the King of Scots by the Bishop of St Andrews as the Pope's representative. And Scotland, in 1328, became an independent country. The Arbroath document only began to be called a declaration in the late 19th or early 20th century. And that was probably because of the US Declaration of Independence in 1776. Although many signers of the US Declaration had Scottish ancestry, the link between the two documents is considered dodgy by many historians. But in spite of that, it was the basis in which the majority leader of the Senate, Trent Loft, instigated a resolution to be passed, declaring that April the 6th should be recognised as Tartan Day. And in 2016, the Declaration of Arbroath was placed on the UK Memory of the World Register as part of UNESCO's Memory of World programme. It is generally recognised as superbly written and one of the most evocative pieces of official prose from the Middle Ages. Stirring language, evocative sentiments, which can be summed up in 100 words. For as long as but 100 of us remain alive, never will we on any conditions be brought under English rule. It is in truth not for glory, nor riches, nor honour that we are fighting, but for freedom, for that alone which no honest man gives up but with life itself. So I think those sentiments are known across the world. And of course, Braveheart did quite a little bit for the cause of freedom <laughs> yes. in its time. Difficult to think that it's so many years ago now that Braveheart came to the world stage. You know, Liz, I just think that when you're telling the story of how the declaration came about and that, well, we call it a piece of paper, but it's not a piece of paper, a piece of sheepskin. It travelled all the way over to the Pope and came back and the minds that were actually composing the wording for the declaration. Amazing. I just get this picture of them all huddled together in New Battle Abbey. And New Battle Abbey has a special significance to me because when my husband retired, he took up the post of chair at New Battle Abbey College because the Abbey was actually donated to the people of Scotland to be a college um, educating adults returning to education. And the Marquis of Lothian gifted it to the Scottish people. And so they have been trying to commemorate that in 2020. But of course, that all went to the wall and they haven't been able to do it in 2021 because it's highly contentious with the fact that we have an election in Scotland in 2021 and it might stir up too much sentiment in Scotland. I just have this vision of the all these nobles sitting round with their king and say, well, chuck this in, we'll chuck that in. What about a threat? What about a bribe? They're sitting there composing this document. You can actually picture it. Yeah, but at the end of the day, with all that, this committee, of you like, have actually produced a good document which did what it was meant to do. 
it got the Pope to sign it and it brought about peace and it gave Scotland its independence. Eventually, yeah, but you can just imagine Bishop Bernard. I mean, how lucky were they to have a man with his ability with the pen to be able to draft this document? Fantastic. It's fantastic. And the fact that it is still remembered across the world with these Tartan Day celebrations using the date on which the document was signed. So many people across the world, the Scottish diaspora, estimated to be about 50 million, have such strong bonds to Scotland. Yes, and I think Scotland, we're very lucky that we have this thing called tartan, which allows people to kind of, even the most fashion conscious, to wear a piece of tartan that tells the world, I've got a Scottish connection. If anybody listening was at the virtual tour on Thursday night, Scottish Blethers did a virtual tour on Sky, Misty Island. And of course, you can't talk about Sky without talking about the clearances, the Highland clearances, where so many people were put off the land in the 18th and 19th century. And some went voluntary, some were coerced, but so many of them went to what would become colonies all over the world and establish Scottish tradition. And in some places, the traditions are stronger there than they are at home now. Yes, and I think that's shown, Liz, when we see that when Tartan Day was started in Canada, we took till about 2006 for Angus Council, where our broth is, to say we really should be doing something about this. And even in Scotland, Tartan Day, we're trying the... the Scottish Tourist Guides Association, the Scottish Tourist Guides, always do quite a bit on their Facebook page, etc., on Tartan Day. Guides dress up in Tartan and send their photographs in. But that's really about all. We don't have parades, do we, Liz? No, but when you see this, the images that you get from New York, Tartan Week, we've had um, people like Sean Connery, as you mentioned, Helen. We've also had Jack McConnell, um, Alan Cumming, um, the actor. leading this tartan parade and apart from tartan there are just so many other iconic images of scotland with the bagpipes the mast pipes and drums you know if you hear it as a scot it makes the hairs rise up on the back of your neck when you hear it particularly highland cathedral and also the fact that the act of prescription which is the date on which the australians celebrate tartan day the act of prescription following the battle of culloden banned all things what we'd say all things scottish the wearing of the tartan, the wearing of the Highland dress, the playing of the bagpipes, the speaking of the language. And that's why when people were transported to Australia, that they hid their Scots identity. That's right. But you were mentioning Australia there and the immigrants arriving in Australia. It was actually interesting when I was doing the research for the presentation on Sky. So many of the Scots in Sky were put off the land because of the coming of the great white sheep. It was much more economical. And so the Scots were forcibly evicted to Australia. And when they got to Australia, what did they do? They started sheep farming. And through time, the cheap imports from Australia put the sheep industry in Scotland out of business. And it became that the glens were turned over to great sporting estates. And instead of sheep, it was deer that were introduced onto the land. So that's a bit of irony that it was actually Scots that were, were at the heart of the establishment of the Australian sheep industry. I suppose the same, the cattle industry in Scotland, the droving of all the cattle down to the the, the trice at Falkirk for sale, the money. When that all stopped, the drovers all went over to, well, not all of them, but many of them went over to Texas, where the cattle industry was really building up. 
because they had generations in their blood flowing through their veins of cattle droving and driving cattle. They understood cattle, so they became the drovers in Texas. I always think that when I'm talking about the Scottish diaspora scattered all over the world, it always reminds me of one of our most powerful Scottish emblems, the thistle. Because the thistle, you know, there's lots of reasons why it chimes with the Scots. It's prickly. But if you think of the seeds that are scattered from it, you know, think of them blowing on the wind. You know, it's just like the diaspora being blown to all around the world and establishing roots there. And now, you know, such an important contribution. You know, Clan Donald on Sky, the centre, was bought by the Macdonald clan, members of the clan from all over the world. Um, who, who raised the money to purchase the lands which the McDonald's were having to sell off on Sky? Yeah, and by the same token, you the rival clan, the clan Campbell, when they they needed to do huge repairs after fires at their castle in Barrera, they went out to the diaspora, the Campbells across the world, and raised the money to rebuild and re-roof their castle. Just think of all the Caledonian societies that you have across the world, the way in which they celebrate Burns Day, St Andrew's Day, and of course the Highland Games. Some of the largest Highland Games in the world are now held in the States and Canada. And the pipe bands. You know, when you have the World Pipe Band Championships over here, the, the bands coming over from Canada, from Australia, from New Zealand are brilliant. And they are you know, top bands. Yep. You know, we're just a small country, but we've got a lot of clout across the world. And uh, as I say, who knows what 2021 will bring with an election on the doorstep. And of, of course, very emotive in terms of that statement about freedom. Yes. Because uh, if we get a Scottish Nationalist Party in power, then it's almost guaranteed that we will have another referendum in Scotland. Boris might not agree with it, but um, I think the ball has started rolling. And uh, so I think the vote that's coming up it's going to be a very important one. Yeah, but first of all, let's recover from COVID and get, get all these tartan <laughs> days and tartan week celebrations back on the road for 2022. OK, Helen, I think that leads us on to our word of the week. What's your word of the week? My word of the week is, well, I was kind of relating it back to the wearing of tartan and kilts. The ski and do, S-K-E-A-N. And D-H-U, ski and do. It's not a skiing pigeon. It's actually the black knife, ski and do. Do black, ski and knife. The black knife that you'll see in the sock of people who are wearing the kilt outfit. They're part of their traditional weaponry that Highlanders used to wear. And now it's toned itself right down to a about an eight inch knife, black knife that's worn in the sock. Causes a lot of problems when people are trying to take their Highland dress into any you know, through any airport. <laughs> yes, it was always the one knife that they were able to keep when all other knives were left at the door, and it was because they used it to cut their meat. So it was ceremonial. It was useful. It was not a weapon of war. My words going back to thinking of all these nobles gathering around their king, plotting and creating this document. I've come up with heat bummers. <laughs> <laughs> heed bummers are high heedians. Heed, H-E-I-D, head. High head ones, the important ones, the powerful ones. And it's still used of bosses. You know, your bosses, your heed bummer. Yeah, that's a good one. Used a lot in Scotland, especially if there's a little bit of controversy going on in the workplace. The heed bummers are up to, up to it again. Yeah, usually with a good deal of cynicism in the comments that are coming out. 
<laughs> well, that's it for another week, folks. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Scottish Pleathers. And we look forward to next week's episode, our special tribute to Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh. Well, bye bye for now. And we'll see you next time. I don't see you through the week. I'll see you through the window. Cheerio bye. Cheerio bye. And there we have it, the end of another episode of Scottish Blethers. If you'd like to join us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram as at Scottish Blethers. And if you'd like to leave a review, please do so on your podcast platform of choice. It's cheery bye from me. Ta-ta the new from me. And if I don't see you through the week, I'll see you through the windy from me. Bye. See ya. Bye.